art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Art on Your Sleeve, a podcast about art, design and the music industry. This episode was produced in collaboration with Brian and Sarah at the Permanent Record podcast. If you aren't aware of that show and you like the kind of things that I talk about here, I think you'd probably like what they're doing, so definitely check them out. Permanent Record podcast, it's on iTunes and it's all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc. So definitely worth looking at. In the episode that I did with Brian and Sarah, we talked about The Innocence, a 1988 album by Erasure. I talked a bit about graphic design and the record covers, but also we talked more broadly about the music and just generally about the music scene of the early of the late 80s. So what I've done here is take all of those episodes and edit them down to one smaller episode, but I've also included a bit of additional information that we weren't able to include at the time of recording because we didn't have it. It came in a little bit late. So I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, don't forget to let me know what you think. Andrew, of course, we first heard of him as a contributor to Classic Pop Magazine, where each month, more or less, he writes the pop art article. There was no article in this newest issue. There wasn't. I needed some time off. (laughs) I've written, I think, like 25 issues in a row. And and, and from now on, I'm doing every other issue. So I'm still around, but I just need a bit of a a break. That's understandable. That's a lot of work, I'm sure. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's a labor of love, but it, it is a lot of work. You know, there are only sort of two to three thousand words, but they take a lot of time, you know, interviewing people and doing all the research and sourcing all the images. It's it's an, a massive piece of work, but nothing that I'd complain about. And you're also the host of a podcast that I recently listened to, the, the entire back catalog, Art on Your Sleeve podcast, which is available yeah. on iTunes. Yeah, I, mean, that, I feel a bit bad about that because there's not many episodes there. But um, it is something that I will add to as I've got content to put on there. But but I use that more to dump all of the uh, recordings that I've... When I interview people, you know, you spend sort of two or three hours with them, but you only have a limited amount of words to, to put in the magazine. So the, the podcast is a great place to actually put the audio so people who want to dig a bit deeper can, can get all of that additional sort of information and background on, on the covers that we grew up with and love yeah that's and it was really fun to listen to i listened to all of them last week and your style on the podcast is very conversationalist you're you're very like easy to talk to it seems so like as you're listening to it you kind of seem like you're at a pub one of them you actually filmed or recorded at a pub right that was actually in a hotel in southport and and i deliberately picked i delivered southport's a little seaside town in the northwest of england and i deliberately picked that because it was where uh, that was the one that was for soft cell when i was interviewing hugh feather who's their record sleeve designer and he, he and Mark Armand worked at the Arts Theatre, which was actually where that hotel now is. So I felt it was quite a nice place to bring him back to because he could literally say, you know, well, over there is where we, you know, first did this and that's where we used to buy our shoes or whatever. <laughs> that's great. That's yeah, great. It, was, it felt like we were really sort of bringing it back down to earth. But yeah, it, that was a lot of fun. That was a really good episode, and it was it's almost like you feel like you're sitting at the table next to you guys, like eavesdropping on your conversation, <laughs> the, the way that, it's, that's it's something, presented. That's kind of deliberate in a way, because I think that when you listen to the way a lot of people interview people, 
often the question is longer than the answer that they get. Right. And what, what I prefer to do is actually just, just almost, rather than ask a question, just start a conversation because then it all flows. And in fact, so much flows that a lot of it has to be cut out, um, even on the, on the audio stuff, because people will tell you things that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to share with the world. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's always a good, fun thing to do. And, and I will do more of them. It's just... It, well, you know yourself how long it takes to put a podcast together. Right. Yeah, it takes a little but while. But it's nice that you do put that together, the extra content that you're not able to share in the articles that you write. So we we first heard from or heard about Andrew. I, I meant to look this up and, and I forgot, but it was back last summer because I remember I was up at my parents' house mowing their lawn and my phone beeped as I was pushing the lawnmower around and it said you you were mentioned in a tweet. So I, I went and checked it and it said it was a tweet from someone named Andrew Dinley who said... <laughs> Uh-huh. A boring journey by train made more interesting by the nice folks at Permanent Record Podcast who seem to be going through my entire childhood record collection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me about reading that. And I was, and oh, I was that's like wonderful. so excited. Someone has, is like listening to our show. Yay. It's like, oh, man, this post is great. And then as I would kind of bring it up on my phone the next day or so, because I was obsessed with the fact that somebody was listening, yeah. <laughs> I started to realize that, hey, this this guy is like talking with all these people who are involved with classic pop and he's sharing right. this. And I was like, oh, my God, he works for that magazine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would, I think I was actually going to that. I was possibly on a train journey to London to go and do an interview for the magazine. I, I think it probably was that. And so I was kind of looking around for, you know, possibly even doing a little bit of research and stuff and found your show. And then it was, just, and then I didn't do any research because I just spent the whole journey listening to you. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Sorry. We got you off task. <laughs> It was a pleasurable diversion. Okay. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so we were really excited about that. And then over the next couple months, you would often, like we would do an episode and you would send us a, an email or a message on Facebook. And you, like, if we had mentioned, this is cool, but we don't know what it is, or you would say like, oh, that's the so-and-so keyboard. You always had some information to su- supplement supplement what we yeah. talked about. And it was great because we'd be learning so much from you. And so we've been yep. talking for a while and it's great to uh, get a chance to actually talk with you here on the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's just me being a geek, really. You know, technology is a bit of a, a geek passion of mine so I, you know I grew up loving all of that sort of you know all of those synths and the Fairlight and the Synclavier and so I think when you grew up with those sounds you can, you can identify them in songs so it's it's very nice. You, you know them right? by the actual machines and the equipment that they are we just know them by the well this sounds like a, a seal or something <laughs> or this, this is the ABC sound yeah, yeah we, we don't have a, quite the technical knowledge that you do so we appreciate when you can bring that part to the conversation which I think it's interesting you should mention that on this particular episode because I think that this album is is one of those albums of that period that transcends those sounds there are a lot of sounds that were very similar around that period and I don't think that this album fits into that category even though Stephen Haig the producer was using similar equipment I think what he did with it was really really clever you know it was very intelligent use of the technology because he he created a very lush rich sound with very um, analog equipment that's an excellent adjective to describe that lush lush yes. there are, i was trying to figure out some word this week as i was listening to hallowed ground in particular i was like there's something mm. about this a perfect word for this song mm-hmm. and that's what it is that's why he writes for classic pop and you don't that is that's why i that's why i read it <laughs> that's right <laughs> Everybody's intent on being
And, and another part of, of this record that I think is worth talking about here, especially since we have Andrew on the line, is yes. the, the artwork that went along with it. Oh, yeah. Album cover. And uh, that was actually a collaboration between a few people, right, Andrew? Yes. Yes, it was. And principally, uh, Paul Kira, who did most of the photography, if not all of the photography, um, and Slim Smith, who was the design and layout person for it, who interestingly also did the cover of that Erasure album that you talked about before in, uh, was that 1995? Yeah. Oh, okay. That was, yeah, so he, he worked on both of those. I hardly ever play that one because I only like a few songs on it. Isn't that, isn't the cover of that like a painting of them? It is, yeah. I mean, and so his, his design is, is more about kind of taking other people's elements and making it fit the the format. So it's it, it is based around those paintings. But so he was sort of he did the layout rather than the graphic oh, okay. design. I got you. Yeah. Now okay. I just yeah. saw this this morning when I was on Discogs, um, looking up the cassette, and it says that Maria De Grassi did the cassette art design, which I thought was interesting. That's for for that album for the later iteration. Um, no, no, no. I'm sorry for the for the Innocents. They gave her credit right. for the cassette art design, at least the one that we got in America. Really? I've yeah, not, that's I've what I saw even. on Discogs. It was very strange. That's the only. I've note. not even seen the cassette. Is there anything that's well? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same picture. I mean, the only difference, like maybe they're giving this person credit because she cropped the picture. Right. <laughs> there's there's less white space around the that, around the graphic. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, the album that we have, it's like a really small picture of the cathedral window and then it's a lot of white space and the cassette is mostly the cathedral picture yeah, which maybe it's because i had the cassette i think it works a lot better like i don't know what you think andrew i'm sort of annoyed by all the empty white space oh you see well i, I grew up with pet shop boys record covers, ah. so that <laughs> white space speaks to me rarely <laughs> <laughs> and i was I just really liked it and i thought there was something very very sort of pure and virginal about it as well it just felt it felt right with the with the album title and and there's so many sort of references to, to religion and things that are running through so many you know Yahoo and Witch in the Ditch and Heart of Stone and Hallow Ground and all of they've all mm-hmm. got religious references in the lyrics so it all just it felt like a, con- a visual concept that worked very well I think Classic Pop at least says that there was no specific plan or no concept in mind for the artwork for the album or any of the singles is that really true I think so I think that Erasure are interesting because. I think that they don't. Each of everything they do is very different. There's no sort of uh, continuity with design, and often it doesn't feel like there's any relevance to to the album that it's on. I mean, with the circus, there's something there because you've got the colours and the, that that seems right. relevant. And right, with this, right. there is, but often there isn't that sort of obvious relevance. And what I like about this is that it did feel like it felt like a more. It just felt more conceptually together, uh-huh. really, more cohesive. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's probably down to the designers rather than Vince and Andy, to be honest. I think that they don't really have a lot to do with things. I mean, just just reading the the article in Classic Pop that you mentioned, Andy Bell says it was meant to have a a quasi-religious quality and that the innocence was an allusion to the biblical meek due to inherit the earth. And I can imagine that he's just used that one little phrase and then the designers have run away with it and come up with this whole concept around that. You know, that's what designers do. They'll take a small gem of an idea and really fill it out into something, you know, visually high impact. And I think with this album, it worked really well. And with the singles, sort of, it worked, but not not as not as yeah. elegant. Yeah, and we'll talk about that as we go. The return on investment for each of the singles is a little different. And I think, although I would say that there isn't a theme maybe throughout all the singles, but you you can link them, at least in my mind, because they all have like a really like saturated 
color, like yes. one color mm-hmm. in each one. Uh, yeah. One's purple, one's really, really blue, right. and then one has like the red. So it's the the visuals don't really tie together really, but just the idea that the the color is so Very rich, prominent. it's kind of uncomfortable. Is is yeah. maybe a theme yeah. that ties it sort of oversaturated and you can see that the, the only thing that links them i think is that you can see those colors in the stained glass window that's on what the i cover. was there is there oh, is a sort of yeah i never thought loose, about that loose continuity i think they are actually if you look at these stained glass windows i think they might actually be sort of cutouts of those images for, that later appeared on the singles oh that's cool but yeah you're right with the colors i brought up the the actual image from the stained glass window and definitely yeah i mean honestly some of those colors are pretty saturated too if you look at them yeah yeah. So with I, that sort of interesting photocopied effect, which I don't quite understand what that was about. Yeah, it definitely felt with this album like they'd gone mainstream. You know, I I, I felt I'd followed them from the start. I'd been a fan of them, you know, since since Wonder since Who Needs Love Like That and Wonderland. And through the circus it felt like oh they'd suddenly got hits, you know, things like Sometimes and It Doesn't Have to Be and Victim of Love. And then with this it suddenly felt like wow, they're properly mainstream now. You know, everyone knows them and they're doing, they're playing proper big venues now <laughs> rather than, you know, universities or whatever. It, it, does that, this album changed things, I think, for them. Didn't you say that you had seen them on tour for like Wonderland? And I you did, went to yeah. shows where there were like, hard, I mean, there was like a handful of people even there. Yeah, I, I did. And, and it's, it's very interesting because when I was doing the research for this show, I dug out the tour program for, for the Innocence Tour and they referenced that very, very first tour in there's like a story in the program and they specifically mention the tour so i could i could read that if you wanted to if you wanted me to yeah sure i'd like to hear it not that long so yeah in the program there's a story sort of running through to bring them up to date to where this album is bang the third ever gig heaven in london on a rainy autumn night in 1985 someone in the building decides a cheese toast is in order of the day and as the breville goes on every microchip on the stage flips out andy tells jokes for 20 minutes while vince bravely wields the screwdriver eventually the band played on bang yes it's screwdriver time again as acapella yazoo songs and impersonations of elvis only just saved the day at liverpool polytechnic and that was the gig that i was at oh man where everything blew and andy bell just sang uh, i think he sang don't go and only you with with no no instruments (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) there were probably about 50 of us in the audience A very small gig. Oh, oh God! I was right at the front of the stage as well. And just two years <laughs> later, they're playing really large venues. Yeah, with really yeah, good equipment incredible. and hopefully no equipment problems like that. No, I think by the innocence they'd got their they'd got their gear together. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned before when we talked about Crackers International for our Christmas episodes, which as a rule, the, the songs on that album were, were excellent. But to me at the time, and still now, I said that those songs sound like a step backwards in terms of songwriting maturity when compared to The Innocence. I was just wondering, think, Andrew, if you agree with that. Um, I do and I don't, yeah, ever the diplomat. <laughs> I would say that I don't think it's about song quality. I think it's about production quality. And I think that's where you can hear... Stephen Haig's involvement with this album because I don't think he was involved with that, was he? I think no, he was not that no. themselves. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's the difference. I think if he'd been involved with that, it would have had that extra sonic depth to it that this album has. 
in the whole body of Erasure's work, I think it stands out. Um, and I think that that's the issue. I don't think the songwriting's at fault. I think that Crackers International is, a, is all of the songs on there. I like them all, but they just feel more like something that we've had, you know, like some possibly off the circus. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. If that's the case, let me ask you two guys this question. If by not working with Steven, your songs are going to sound a, a little bit like a step backwards, why didn't they just continue to work with, work with Steven? Hey, guys. I, I think it's to do with them wanting to take back ownership of their sound, partly. I, I read some things about Vince Clark feeling a bit pushed out of the process with this album uh-huh. and Stephen Haig getting too obsessive about everything. And I think that Vince Clark's production style is a lot simpler. And I think that he possibly felt like he wanted to own his own sound again. Yeah, I think that kind of is what I I read as well. I found an interview with him from December of 1988, so it was very timely. And he explained that he didn't really like working with Stephen Haig on the album. He said they tended to work with engineer-type producers rather than producer-type producers, partly because they didn't... He said that's partly so that we have someone who won't get in the way of what we want to do. Mm -hmm. So an author named Luke Turner has stated that this album, The Innocence, has been rubbed out of music history. Do we agree with that statement? I think it would depend on when he said that, because I think now that the 80s, that that period of the 80s is, is looked back on in a much more respectful way than it was uh, 10 years ago. Right. And I think that now we appreciate the 80s more than we did 10 years ago because there's that sufficient distance there for us to look back on it and be able to appraise it in a better way. Um, you sort of need that distance in order to, to understand what was going on, really. Um, so if he was saying that now, I would uh, disagree with him. But if he was saying it 10 years ago, then he may have had a point. Unfortunately, I didn't write down a year. Poor planning. I, I, <laughs> I hope that regardless of when he said it, I hope that that two, 2009 re-release helped to bring some attention back to this record. Yeah, for sure. My memory of this album is uh, rushing out to buy it on the first day for that free poster. The initial releases had the, you know, the great poster, so I definitely wanted that, although I had bought the other albums on the first day as well anyway. But what is the poster? Is the poster just the album cover? Yeah, it's just the album cover. Okay. Um, but it was also, I think it was probably my first or second year working as a graphic designer as well. So I was just, and I think... I was just starting to think about moving away from my parents' house. So it's all connected with all of those feelings about moving away and growing up. And also politically in the UK during this period, it was a bit of a tricky time in terms of gay rights, which is one of the things that runs through a lot of the themes on this album. Um, So there's a a lot of sort of a political aspect to this album that that is connected in my head as well with my own personal uh, life at that time. So it was, a, it was a, f- a funny time, a good time. But um, yeah, it, it's a very kind of, in my memory, it's very potent. I still remember it very, very strongly. And uh, um, yeah, it was good fun. <laughs> that's good. And that's, that's the sign of a great album. If it's still to this day, if you can instantly be taken back to the way you felt about it back 30 years ago, that's amazing. And that shows you that how important this stuff can be to, to people's lives. It is, isn't it? I mean, music does that, doesn't it? Anyway, you know, and and for me, this and introspective by the Pet Shop Boys, they're 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 very closely connected in my head. I don't think there's anything similar in terms of the sound no. of the album, but in my head, they're the two things I always put them together. I think they must have they were probably released very close together, and they were by my two favorite bands. And you know, there was there was just there's a lot of kind of connection for me between them. Try to discover a little something to make me 
To this day, this single has one of my very favorite erasure sleeves, and maybe Andrew has some information on it, but the, it's like a purple background. It looks like sort of like an ancient arena or something, and the font combined with that regal-looking purple, it looks like a really classy um, record sleeve, I think. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I, I don't know what it means. I don't know what the relevance is. <laughs> well, the as we talked last time, there was no real plan yeah. for these singles, I guess. Just picking colors and images that looked really good. Yeah, I suppose the common link is that they're all very sort of garish, bright colors, aren't they? Right. Yeah. And I just love that color purple. This is one of the songs when we're every couple months or so, I like to restock the jukebox with different songs. And uh, I always like putting this one back in so I can see the sleeve again. (laughs) I think the good thing about this record, this single as well, is that it just all of the the different versions of it and the B-sides, everything was high quality. I loved all of the extra tracks that went with it. And it just felt like Erasure could do no wrong at this point. The B-side for this one was uh, like Zsa Zsa Gabor? Yeah, and Love is Colder Than Death as well was another kind of very dramatic oh yeah yeah yeah. that sounds like a pet shop boys title (laughs) (laughs) i think with with this song 1988 even though it is a long long time ago it's not long enough for it to feel like it's a proper classic in the same way that we think of the beatles as classic music but i think in another decade this particular song will be the song that we think of as things like hey jude or you know i think it's got that real anthemic enjoying quality to it oh yeah for sure yeah yeah i hope you are correct because it does i think it does deserve to be up there. yeah and and that ties in so well with a little review i have about the song i mean those are some of the exact words almost mind if i share it with you go ahead all right So I I mentioned in the previous episode of Review from Metro Weekly, and they talk about this song. They said, the second U.S. single and third in the U.K., A Little Respect, has become an anthem that is still guaranteed to get a room full of guys to sing at the top of their lungs, regardless of their ability to hit the high notes. (laughs) And I loved that. I loved that. And that is so true because... This song works as both like a gay anthem and a sports song. There are fans of different Scottish, British, and Irish football teams that sing this song at their matches. Yes. And, and a British yeah. rugby team uses this song as their, their official team song. It appeals to everybody. Right, right. It's such a good song. This is probably one of my very favorite Erasure videos. I sort of sometimes uh, think that Erasure, their videos don't always live up to the songs. I think Depeche Mode and and The Cure are more, I've always thought that their videos were a little better than Erasure's, but this particular video is a great one. I agree. How do you feel about it, Andrew? I would agree as well. And I think the difference with the examples that you've given is that that The Cure have that uh, long-term relationship with Tim Pope around video and Depeche Mode have a similar relationship with Anton Corbin. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. I think that that, the fact that you you have a director that understands the band and a band that trusts the director makes for a great end result. And I think that that's possibly part of the problem with Erasure's videos, why they, they all feel a bit different and there's no sort of through through link with them all right right Um, they're disjointed that is so true because Depeche Mode's videos aren't good until they meet Anton Anton right yes their videos are just as lackluster as anyone else's yeah and and all over the map yeah oh that's a good point I never thought of that yeah this guy um that directed this video was Peter Christofferson and he has really yeah yeah oh you know him then yeah. The ones I saw he did um he did videos for Van Halen, the, the the Nick Kershaw, Nine Inch Nails, and even Brian Stabbing Westward. Oh, Stabbing Westward. <laughs> 
Yeah. So how do you know him, um, Andrew? Peter Sleazy Christofferson was uh, a member of a group called Throbbing Gristle, which is a oh. really um, influential uh, industrial band. A lot of people will cite them, you know, as, as an influence and, um, you know, a real sort of inspiration. They were a naughty band, weren't they? They were very naughty. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what they were doing was completely, completely left field. But, you know, for that reason alone, they were very influential. Uh, he's sadly n- no longer around, is he, Peter Christofferson? Oh, but I didn't he, look. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of became more aware of him when he did the some of the videos for The The. The They did an album called Infected, where they, it was one of the first video albums where every album track had a specific video that went with it. And Peter Christofferson did a couple of the tracks for that. I, I, I really liked what he did. interesting choice for for the first single ship of fools i think because it's it's such a slow song and it's quite sonically it's very different as well to a lot of the stuff on the album and certainly to everything that came before this album i remember buying the single the day it came out i hadn't even heard it i just i was aware it was coming out and i thought i have to have the new erasure single i'm being a bit confused by it because it was so different i wasn't sure it was what i wanted to hear i mean i think now it is a great song but it it was quite a brave first single from the album it really was because this is not at all what they were known for yeah i have the, the, the same note that this was a rather bold choice for a single from the band a ballad and it's really a different kind of a sound and different subject matter it's not just about love and yeah i think it probably got them a new set of fans as well you know people who weren't necessarily into the the more poppy stuff i wonder if they pulled in a more uh, mature audience with that single as well perhaps could, yeah it could be because sure. it definitely has that kind of tone to it oh yeah so and, and you know if you if you look at the way that it's packaged as well it just feels more grown up than the circus as well it feels a more a more mature album i think oh yeah i agree that's absolutely true that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that but when you bring it up yeah that makes sense it's definitely a more mature feel to it speaking of the packaging of this record this is of all the sleeves that we see for this album and for these singles this is the only one that i'm not too crazy about okay it, mm. it, there's so much blue it's not really an attractive picture i didn't think i don't know I, and i didn't like i saw a couple of different versions maybe one was the seven inch single and one was the 12 inch and one of them had the the font for the name of the song was like super fancy it was like a font that was enclosed in a box <laughs> yes. with like stuff yeah. underneath it and i really thought that mixing that particular font with the traditional erasure lowercase mm-hmm. logo i didn't like the way that that looked Mm. I think they were almost going for a slightly pirate look, weren't they? I think it, it sort of links in with all of the shells on the beach and okay. the anchors and right. all of that stuff. But did, have you looked very, very closely and you can see you can see Vince and Andy in there as well. Oh, really? I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, they're, they're actually they're standing in profile in the photograph, but they're in the background. But once you know they're there, you can't miss them. Oh, oh take a look. I have to look for them. Andrew, I don't know about you, but the amount of dancing we were just doing here at our uh, little uh, living room studio here, I think they made a terrible mistake not releasing this one as a single. Um, They're all waiting 20 years to do something. <laughs> yep. It's that bass line, isn't it? It's yeah. such an infectious, and yep. thumpy bass line that you can't help but sort of, well, in my case, wobble around in the chair. <laughs> Same here, yep. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is so bouncy. I have that note. It's a bouncy song. More than any other album cut here, this is the song that online people were just saying, this is the single that never was. Everyone says that. I have that note as well. And I I can't believe, I seriously can't believe it wasn't released anywhere in the world until... uh, 2009. 2009. The 21st anniversary. Back in 1988, you think some country, Germany or Singapore, evidently Singapore liked this album. Yeah. Somebody should have gotten this as a single. It's such an obvious decision. Yeah. This was the third single for the UK, but the first single for the US. This was released on May 30th, 1988. And I think that date is the same for both countries. So in the US, that was a week after the album came out. This single is probably my favorite of all Erasure singles uh, due to the, the just the two awesome songs that are on the or the B-sides on the 12-inch ah. vinyl. We get the remake of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I think is great. <laughs> it has the, the very overused, what I just called the Erasure Gallop, which, uh-huh. I, which I think you coined that in, in our Christmas episode. You get those neat whip sounds and the voices mm-hmm. going, boom. Ooh, ah. <laughs> you love that kind of stuff. I do. We, and then we also get the song mm. Don't Suppose, which yes. is a wonderful song. Oh. It's like their attempt at a country song. They yes. even have like a real banjo on it. Yes, I love that. Banjo and synth. So what a tremendous combination. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Love it. But all three of the songs, that was that was just a fantastic single. Do you like those two B-sides, Andrew? I do. I think that, you know, that they could do no wrong during this period. And I that don't suppose is a beautiful song. And The Good, The Bad and The Ugly was just a, a, a silly, fun, funny yeah. thing to do. I, right. think, I think it's very amusing, but I still yeah. find it enjoyable. Oh, I meant to ask you, what was the B-side of Ship of Fools? It was um, When I Needed You. Oh, okay. Okay. That's that's a good song. Yeah. Which which is why I think it's odd that in a, in the States you had River Deep Mountain High as, as an extra track when they had another original song that they could have put on there instead. They could have put Don't Suppose on there, which was another uh-huh. B-side. Yeah, I, I uh, have a comment on that later on. And my last thing just about the single, I love the sleeve to this record too. Mm. I think it looks great. Maybe it's because it cost me so much time and money to win it at the <laughs> You stared at it all week. So there's a toy cowboy hat. There's like a starfish rocks. There's all this red and blue, uh, red and brown, and some blue. It's it's like a crazy mishmash of stuff, but it works really well to my eye, at least. Strange, strange mix of things. If it was just completely sepia tone, for instance, the texture of the stuff in the picture still makes it an interesting graphic. I think. You had a different cover, I think, to, to us. Yeah, there. I think we did. I was I Googled yeah. it, and I saw some covers that I didn't recognize, and then I saw mine. Oh. Yeah, so I think the US one was more of like a collage of different different yeah. things cut, cut into it, whereas ours was just a, sta- a single photograph oh. of, of a, a rock with some pearls around it, I think. But they're both quite strange. But I wonder if the cowboy thing, is, is that to do with the B-side and the banjos and stuff? Is that referencing that? Yeah. That's what I always assumed. The country, I never saw anything about it. The but, country Joe mix, so I and guess. And the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh, and the good, and the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I suppose it's just kind of going along with those. Everybody's intent on killing someone. 
a wonderful track. That's one of my favourites on the album, actually. I think it's just so lush and I feel like that's an overused word <laughs> in this episode. But I think it's a really good song. I think it just does all the right things for me. And when I discovered it was based on Elvis Presley's In the Ghetto, that was even... <laughs> is it really? I saw some reference to that and I was like, really? Is this a preacher's attempt at In the Ghetto? Really? <laughs> Oh. It's based on that simply as like it took inspiration from that. It didn't like steal like a chord structure or anything, right? It just is the same think, kind of theme. I think, I think musically that they, there's a sort of similarity there. Really? But I'm, yeah, but I'm not a big Elvis fan. so I, 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 I haven't heard that song in a while, but just the little pieces I can bring back to my mind right now. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> the, the theme of... Uh, social problems and you know things like that i can definitely tie them together i mean andy bell said that it was actually lyrically and musically influenced by that song oh good heavens. Oh, did he? yeah. okay well yeah. i guess we have to believe him mm. but i've not i can't remember the lyrics to the to the elvis song well speaking of lyrics this is yes. this is a pretty pretty much a departure for erasure lyrics isn't it well, well yeah i mean it starts off with everybody's intent on killing someone <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah that <laughs> is from chains of love to the, yeah <laughs> well, that's a good point <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Chains of love. I was just well. thinking that, you know, most of the time I think of them as just very personal relationship driven lyrics. And then there's well, this song. And then there's the circus. Well, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, this I saw a comment where someone claimed that this was the obligatory social commentary song on the album. Oh. Now, I would say they didn't realize how many there actually were on the album, but yeah, this is agree. definitely the most obvious one. I'm calling out all the big grumps on the internet who want this song removed from this album. Because I'm sitting here dancing like a lunatic. I'm dancing like a bubble dancer from the 1930s. Barbara Stanwyck and the the old movies. This is a fun song, guys. It is. Don't, don't just because you're a grump, don't try to take this song off the album and away from me. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it just, though, that it's not that it's a bad song. It's just that all of the other songs are so phenomenally good that this naturally pales a little bit. Maybe. Hmm. Yeah, there's some truth. There is some truth to that. I think it's a really rare instrumental that is going to hold up to a really well-written song with vocals. That's probably you're almost, true. You're almost always going to say, I would I would rather there be another real song on this album yeah, instead of that vocals. instrumental. You always hear people say that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not anti-instrumental. I, I just think that it just feels somehow a bit... Um, I mean, we keep using this word, we've used this, the word lush a few times, and, and the album is quite a sophisticated sounding album. And this song to me doesn't sound as classy in that respect. So it's not that it doesn't have words, it just feels a bit like um, a sore thumb. As in, I think that's, a, is that an English phrase? A sore stands thumb. Out like, oh, stands, no, yeah. Stands out oh, like yeah, we thumb. use that. Sure, we do. Uh, Sorry, hmm. I'm being a grumpy old man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. A lot of a lot of what you say there, I I can see the wisdom in. This is rather juvenile compared to to most of the other songs on the record. Mm. I don't know. Maybe as a Vince Clark fan, I I just get the feeling that because it's an instrumental, it this probably is pure Vince Clark. Well, it is. I think it's, so. Oh, you know, for a fact. Well, I don't know. It, it just sounds like it. There's a history, isn't there, with if you look back at some of the earlier albums as well, of, of him doing exactly this, where there's one track on the album that most fans will say, well, why is that there? You know, oh, right. on, on Upstairs at Eric's, it was uh, I Before He, Except After Seeing. Yeah. On, yep. on um, You and Me Both, it was Happy People. There's always that one song that sort of makes people question his sanity. <sighs> 
<laughs> See, you're making me jealous because that, we didn't get happy. We people. didn't get happy people in our U.S. version of uh, "You and Me Both." Does he do the vocals on that song? He does. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I, I read. And it really, it really stands out like a sore thumb. <laughs> 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 um, because for that reason, and I, I wonder whether he does that on purpose. It's just you know, we just decide he's going to throw some random thing in there just to shake it up a little bit. First things first, this should have been a single. This is another lost opportunity, I think. I agree. This would have played well in America, I think in the UK as well. I don't know why they didn't bother to release it, because I just think it's a wonderful song, a very catchy song, very accessible song. I think it would have been a hit. And it's very disappointing to me that so many people out in the world don't know about it. I know, this is a great song. A lot of people online claim, and I I could never see anyone give any actual proof of this. Maybe you know something, Andrew. But people have said things like, this is clearly a leftover track from an earlier album. Do you know if that is a true statement? No, not at all. That would be the um, Phantom Bride is the only one that I was aware of that was, you know, pre-existing this album yeah. this this is a really strong song i think i think i completely agree that it this would be would have made a great single i think so too and it's it's always seemed out of place to me not because it's a bad song but just because it's such a fun song with those horns this, this is the only song that has that kind of brass onslaught yeah. on this album yeah and so it just sort of stands out it's such a strong great song it's bright and poppy and punchy that's what mm. i think Should not be called if you want to wed the devil's daughter. I pray to the Lord on high, high to set you free. Praise the Lord. Sit back down. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Love it. It's great, is it? You could just imagine it being sung in some church somewhere. It's It's got that real kind of gospel. It's just, it does. again, it's just another song on the album that has something that's specific to that song. I think, you know, there's a lot of experimentation. You know, there's not a lot of songs by Erasure that have a gospel theme. And this is this is perhaps the only one. I'm sure there are others, but I can't remember them. Can't but think of any. It's, it's a really, really strong song. You can't go wrong, can you, Stone? Better that the devil should not be called... If you want to wed the devil's daughter, it's <laughs> yep. an opening lyric. <laughs> he crams a lot of words into these verses. I'll tell you, I've always had trouble singing along to those first couple lines in each verse because there's just so many words. And I'm, I don't know, it's just they don't roll off my tongue like they do for him. No, but it sounds really good. Yeah. When we get to the part where he says, I pray to the Lord on high, high to set you free. I can do that. It's just the <laughs> stuff leading up to it. Like, uh, can't do the rest of it. Another one of those songs that has the sort of religious theme running through, you know, the so many of them on this album you know there's no wonder that stained glass window ended up on the front cover uh-huh. yeah it fits it fits the album perfectly uh, yeah back in 88 this was my favorite song when i first got this record really i like the song even better than all the the singles oh that's incredible yeah i just there was something about the melody of it that i just thought was so awesome and that it was so much fun to sing because i was always singing along in the car and oh, yeah. anytime anytime i could be singing i was happy that's why i loved it and, and part of the thing that i liked so much was the rapid nature of those those lyrics mm-hmm. like gotta lift your head up high gotta face the darkest skies it was yeah. so fast. It is. It's and so, so fun fast. to try to sing with. Yeah. And once again, we're getting that cool lower register. We that, are. That Andy doesn't always use that I think sounds yeah. so good. 
I wonder whether with this song how how much of a, a joke it is lyrically because during this you know there's, there's a lot of stuff on this album that's very much around the kind of political climate mm-hmm. and the the AIDS crisis at the time where people were kind of Bible bashing gay yeah. people you know is it and I wonder whether this is just a complete tongue in cheek uh-huh. jab at those kind of people really all that stuff but I pray to the Lord uh-huh. I'm so glad you said that because it was last night I think and I was thinking I was going over my notes for this and it was too late to talk to you about it but I wondered if this song was to be taken seriously or not and then I wondered if it's actually a supremely ironic song you know I think so like it's just like like if it's like another angle to the idea about praying away the gay I think it is back in the 80s we had the sisters of perpetual indulgence here in the uk who were basically a load of men who used to dress up as nuns <laughs> oh and, my uh, gosh. and sort of give out leaflets about uh-huh. safe for sex and things but you know they'd be shouting hallelujah and things yeah and <laughs> i see it very much as part of that kind of tradition of using religion in a very camp and tongue-in-cheek way mm-hmm. yeah i think it works oh yeah it is it's so it's it is very tongue-in-cheek i think I'm a little embarrassed now because, like, I never really believed that Andy Bell was believing what he was singing here. But I never really thought of what the alternate was. Like, if he was taking a shot at anything, I never really thought about it and never really knew what he was trying to accomplish. Um, so I actually took some time to, like, read the lyrics. Okay. And try to, try to like, get something out of them. I, I just kind of did notice one thing that I... Uh, I just noticed that like the whole way through the narrator gives really cliched advice, like put your money where your heart is and lift your head up high. And the background singers are saying, I pray to the Lord on high to set you free. It's all stuff that's like really easy to say and of questionable value. The things that you've said are still kind of, they follow along with that. These people that think they know better. And like when you say, come and put your trust in me. Yeah, I'll I'll take care of it. I'll fix your problems. I'll I'll solve your problem of being gay or. Yeah. Yeah. And all all the stuff around the AIDS crisis you know, that was it all went with all of that stuff about you know it was all about judgment and mm-hmm. yeah you know, it, I, I think it's definitely ties in with that i'm too trusting well i didn't <laughs> think of this back in the day this was new to me i think that's what's great about it though isn't it and particularly with this album that it is such an, an optimistic sounding album right but a lot of the lot of the lyrics when you deconstruct them there is quite heavy content in them you know there's there's a lot of social commentary and criticism of things that are going on in the government at the time you know here and in and in the states right. you know when you had ronald reagan and we had margaret thatcher they were very kindred spirits politically and i think that you know it, it works on both sides of the atlantic really i agree or are we just reading far too much into it? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you on it's, this one. Uh, a website called dailyvault.com said they gave a review of this this song and they don't really like it. The album cover's image is explained somewhat by Yahoo, which is Erasure's half-baked attempt at crafting a gospel song. Ridiculous lyrics are a complete misfire. This is where Vince and Andy sound as they are trying to stretch beyond their limitations and in doing so, they unfortunately missed their mark. So that that's fine. You can think that. I obviously disagree with you, but I don't want to argue his, his review. I want to talk about the idea that Vince and Andy were trying to stretch their limitations because I'm not going to say that Erasure doesn't have limitations because everyone, everyone does, but I feel that Erasure has way fewer limitations than most any other pop band that I've ever heard. Erasure does gospel, they do waltzes, they do piano ballads, they do 70s Mm. disco, they do 60s rock covers. Last week, it was announced they had the number one album on the classical music chart here in the United States. (laughs) So where are the limits of of the band? They can't do hair metal, but why would you want to? (laughs) 
I wonder whether that's just a more broader criticism of serious muso rock critics who look back at electronic music as limited as a genre anyway. I don't I don't agree with that. I think what you said is wrong, but it's almost like snobbery. It's like, you know, that you're limited by the fact that it's electronic music. It's soulless. It doesn't have the, the same energy and passion as guitar, real guitars that's and like real, real music, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that you come across that all the time with people, particularly with when people are, you know, critiquing the 80s because the 80s is all bundled together as one big throwaway pop period by a lot of people. And I just wonder whether he's probably just doing that, really. It's quite a judgmental, broad brush stroke of, as you said, a band that has a huge repertoire of styles. Right. To just say that just feels really stupid, really. Yeah. yeah. It's a rather pithy and ignorant comment, I yeah. think. Yeah. I've always sort of thought that Andy is made from the same mold as Freddie. Freddie did, you know, heartbreaking ballads and he did We Will Rock You and he did opera mm-hmm. yeah. and none of it was a stretch for him. And I think, no. I think Andy's kind of in that same mold. He can do basically whatever he wants to if he sets his mind to it. But I bet the person who made that review wouldn't judge Queen in the same way by the fact that they are recognized a as a band. rock band. Oh, yeah. yeah. It yeah. instantly elevates their status, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's real instruments. Which, yeah. Right. That's which it. is really, really frustrating because I think music can come from anything you know it's it's all about songwriting isn't about what you're writing the song with it's about the song you've written it's right it's like judging a painting by what kind of paint it was created with yeah right right that's a great comparison I like that yeah limited thinking Hmm. yeah they weren't using their imagination it's just your imagination rolling This, this song has some truly terrible rhyming. Oh. <laughs> no. Okay. In no, the no, second no. verse, he huh? rhymes Medusa with seduce you. Yes. And stone with gone. Oh, well, that's So my good. advice is try harder. Mm. Well, I saw lots of reviews that completely lambasted Andy for the rhyming of Medusa and seduce you. <laughs> I, I think that's just fine. I think it's extremely clever. I'm, I mean, I'm a fan of rhyming poetry and I like to write limericks. But not naughty ones. It's a very easy song, isn't it? It's not, again, this is why, possibly why I use the word shallow. It feels like it's not a particularly challenging song lyrically. It, it feels a little bit easy lyrically to me. There's yeah, no I can, I can buy that. I think we owe him a little bit of a break after all these other coded messages he's been giving us, and there are more to come. <laughs> Ah, la la la. This is a waltz. <laughs> That's the first thing I want to say about <laughs> it is this. A waltz. Three quarter time, uh, 94 beats per minute. Nice, lovely little mid tempo waltz. It makes you want to skip around in a field like Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music, you know? It's just very. Go on, go, go and do it now. <laughs> go, go do it. All right, I'll be right back. <laughs> go, for, go, go for a skip in the field. Yes, it was you. Almost feels like I mean he said in uh, one of the things I found that the song was influenced by the Wizard of Oz and it almost feels like you could imagine it being in something like Wicked the Musical or something it's, uh-huh. it feels like it's a character singing the song it doesn't feel like it's him yeah mm-hmm. so that's why the delivery is perhaps quite the, the vocal delivery is quite different right perhaps. yeah I would I would get that I think as well it's slightly throwaway pop feel belies the seriousness of the subject that's lurking beneath as well you know 
it is it is a really serious song that's wrapped in quite you know um almost slightly throwaway jokey packaging but it's you know there's there's a lot of depth to the lyrics and you know social critique going on with it so yes. that's that's what the two of you were were discussing yes yesterday messenger secret conversation yes, <laughs> very secret messages we were sending back and forth i had these ideas and i was like am i off base and you're like no you got the got it right but i want you to be the one to say it yeah i mean i haven't really seen this written anywhere but but when you asked that question that was instantly what i remembered and i think it, it again it probably comes back to reviews that i was reading back in the day when i was reading melody maker or whatever that the witch in the ditch is you know we had margaret thatcher as our prime minister and i think it's clearly a jab at her and her government who were at that time as i talked about earlier were pushing through some pretty nasty legislation to you know basically ruin people's lives particularly gay people mm -hmm. and i think a lot of this is digging at that stuff really in a very sort of light-hearted way but there is there's an anger i think in these lyrics as well yeah it's like they're talking about the gay community being ostracized again because of aids and because of the politicians in power at the time and the yeah. the lines i'm looking i'm praying for a place i can dwell in a yeah. place where our love can be true like they've yeah. lost that uh, i think with i think that lyric particularly that always reminds me of go west that that sort of looking for utopia and just hoping you know that sort of wish to find somewhere where you can just be what you want to be without any kind of pressure or you know criticism or judgment and that's what you know the, the village people song is all about that go west you know heading right. to the west and for liberation and i think that there's a sort of there's a link i think between this song and that song that desire for utopia yeah i agree because in the 80s it felt like things were moving forward but then the AIDS crisis just ground everything to a halt and then put it all into reverse and you had things like Clause 28 which we, again we've talked about and it is was an influence on this album but also you know was the thing just the general media environment that was going on it wasn't a nice time to be gay in the 80s uh, and particularly to be an out gay pop star as, as Andy Bell was you know he was one of the few really and he got a lot of stick for it but he you know he's stuck his heels in that ditch and you know, got on with it. <laughs> that's right so i think it's a very brave song as well and that that's what i meant about it be lying what's beneath it really i think that it's quite a powerful song wrapped in quite a throwaway pop song pretty heavy stuff were we never to be forgotten lay down your sweet head and cry we'll live in dreamland tonight they've been forgotten they're upset about it. They only have their dreams and fantasies of having so-called normal lives. Or it's even slightly like an elegy, you know. Is, is it actually about someone who's died, you know, and about laying down your sweet head and, you know, yeah. entering the valley of light? You know, that's right. kind of a bit of a, you know, could that be seen as, you know, the valley of light? Is that going to heaven kind Absolutely. of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, head toward the light. That's a really good observation. I'm glad you guys talked about that so you could educate me because I, I just focused sort of on being silly on this song, uh -huh. talking about Falco and Hoyt and stuff and you guys actually are like <laughs> educating Bring me on what is in these lyrics yeah which i appreciate andy bell channeling is in a diva again there with his i'll say a little prayer yeah. we've already had r-a-e-s-p-c-t yeah okay, right, right yeah do you think that's a reference to the song i'll say a little prayer that Dion warwick did I do wonder, I do wonder, possibly. 
but it's a great song it, you know nevertheless it's a great song that i think carries on that i think that this song particularly i think it's it's appropriate that it comes after witch in the ditch because mm-hmm. i think it's another i think it's a very another very gay song i, mean, I hate that phrase but i mean lyrically i mm-hmm. think that it's it's got gay themes within the lyrics that very much go back to the previous album with the song hideaway yeah. i think you can read this as almost like the like a, a, the continuation of the story really where in that song it was about hiding away and embarrassment and this is about holding your head in your hands and the weight of the world on your shoulders and pour your heart out to me it definitely feels like it's a continuation of that narrative lyrically that's a that's a cool point I'd, i never thought about that yeah i i hadn't thought about the tie to hideaway but i can see that you know this person is still feeling very overwhelmed and and the singer yeah. is trying to give them comfort and encouragement like you'll get through this it's going to be okay we'll get through these dark times i think that's a message he's giving to to everyone yes. um, yeah. that's it's, why it's I, a very optimistic song isn't it right and that's why i think it's a good ender you you were talking about how it's kind of like depressing but i honestly think it's it's very encouraging and hopeful i really love this song and i i often felt that there were songs that were weaker than it that got in the way of it so it was almost like i never always got to the end of the album and because it was my favorite song one of my favorites that was nearer the end i suppose it was just it felt like it should be nearer the front really but okay well i can understand that you know it's it does take a while to get here but i think yeah. once, you're, <laughs> once you're here i think it's a it's a well worth the journey are you guys hearing like a gospel feel to this one again yes oh yeah yeah the whoa yeah. it's like very yeah very anthemic and hymn-like and yeah yeah those backing vocals and, really do and yeah. there's lots you know the lyrics again are prayers and souls and wise men yeah. mm-hmm. there's more sorts of religious themes running through it yeah there really are but it's not overwhelming and it's not like you feel like they're trying to preach at you at any point no. in time right yeah they, yeah they just kind of weave these things in well they being andy weaves these things in and they're there and you can definitely tie them together should you choose to and take the time to to look but it's not like banging you over the head so i, I really appreciate that i mean i can't stress that enough really the, the the kind of climate at that time you know i mean remember when uh, the pet shop boys brought out it's a sin right and they ended up on the front of um, the salvation army's magazine you know they were celebrating the fact that the concept of sin was back in in fashion again that's you know, right it, it felt like a very old-fashioned thing and, <laughs> and and people were you know people were talking and using biblical language to make judgments on people and it did feel very odd you know all the fire and brimstone stuff mm-hmm. felt definitely felt like a, a very strange strange time and I wonder just how much he was influenced by that is that why there's lots of re- reference you know because there's basically half of the songs on this album have religious references within them and I wonder if that is part of that that you know because we were living in such judgmental times sounds like that could be yeah it seems reasonable to yeah, me yeah he, he certainly was a part of it and experienced it I'm sure he had some thoughts and feelings on it and this is how he chose to express them because mm. I don't think he's a particularly religious person or anything is he? It's never, I've never seen, I've never him, seen him say that he was. No. no. This is a song that Vince Clark considers one of his best as well, apparently. And with, with the finest lyrics. I'm just reading this in the classic pop thing. It says he considers it their, some of their finest lyrics on one of their best songs. Oh, that's cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. That's good to hear from him. Considering especially that he wasn't super pleased with this entire album. It's nice to know <laughs> yeah. that he, yeah, right. he does acknowledge and recognize that there are good songs on it and appreciates it. That, that's good to hear. We were going to talk about the bonus tracks as extra credit questions, but you know what, folks? It's not very often you get Classic Pop Magazine's Andrew Dinely on the phone. That's right. (laughs) Or on the Skype. 
And this time, extra credit question is going to be made up of two parts. Second part's just going to be a little bit of fun that I wanted to do and kind of put Andrew in the hot seat. But the first part harkens back to something that Andrew mentioned in episode one of this Erasure retrospective, where he sent an email to someone far, far away and way high up in the elevation to try to get some information. He didn't hear back at the time, but he has some information now. So let's take a couple minutes to talk about this cool extra credit information that Andrew has discovered for us. Yeah, it is interesting um, because it shines a lot of light onto things that we really didn't know about before. And I think uh, Paul Kerr, the designer or the photographer for the Innocence Project and and all of those singles, hasn't really spoken about this stuff before. So that was particularly why I wanted to get his insight on it all for that very reason. You know, it's it's always interesting to find out stuff that people don't know. Right, right. Um, I was was looking up stuff on him when we were researching and I, I didn't really see anything on his website about this period of time so it's wonderful if you have some information you can share yeah i mean i think part of the issue for him is that um he was a student when he did all this work so i think you know if you think back to when you were a student what you were creating you've probably (laughs) moved on a lot since then and so i think that's why he doesn't really use this work just because what he's doing now is so different it would be strange to put things in a portfolio from that period just because it would it's really stand out you know we all love it don't we? So it is great to be able to finally find out why it ended up looking the way that it did. Right, right. But he he actually talked about what we talked about in the first episode about the singles and the fact that there were only three singles and it appeared that there should have been four. Yes. And so he's actually told me that the plan was to release four singles and that was why there were four sets of photographs taken. The third set was never used because they only released three singles. That's what we were talking about. Right. He says the intended release was hallowed ground. Oh, oh, are you serious? Wonderful. And he also says that he's got the artwork for all of that stuff in a filing cabinet somewhere in his attic in his old house. Oh, oh uh, man. He and, needs to bring that out. I know, I know. But it's I think it's back here in the UK and he's a little bit further away these days, but we'll go on to that later. That's crazy uh, because so many people online throw around ideas of what would have been the fourth single. People say this and say that. And it's cool to have someone who is in the know actually say like, yeah, you're right. There was going to be one, but and you're wrong. what this it is was. It. Yeah. And, and I think that was a song that all of us were really excited about when we talked about yeah. it yeah. on the show. So that I think we would have been delighted with that choice Absolutely. of a single. Yeah, he did also go on to say that Mute released a single from the album Phantom Bride 21 years later, which is another thing that we talked about. And he was contacted during that period for, for the photography that was done. But he didn't end, it didn't end up getting used just down to timing, the fact that he wasn't around. And uh, so they couldn't end up, they, they originally intended to use that artwork, but it never happened. So we would, we almost got to see it, but not oh, quite. That would have been cool. Yeah. So he was a student, you said, when he did this work. So how did he even get involved with Erasure at that point if he was, it was still a student? Yeah, it's funny. Um, a lot of the people I've interviewed for Classic Pop Magazine, when I've when their work becomes so much a part of your life, you think, oh, how did that happen? And a lot of it is often by chance or just by people being really, really cheeky and saying, can I design your record sleeve? And he he, he said uh, his answer to that question when I asked him was that in some ways it was quite simple. I was just totally into music and I rang up lots of labels, bands, design companies that I liked. And I went in to see them with my portfolio. I showed them photographs and told them lots of stories about why I'd made them. I went into Mute with my portfolio and a few weeks later they asked to see it again. I assumed to send it to the band. Mute were really nice and they made time to look through the work and to listen to the ramblings of a student photographer. All right, so 
like I said, I'm in love with this image of him being there at, at Mute HQ. Did they, did he say, like, did they tell him specifically, we want this? Or was he given free reign to kind of create as he saw fit? Like, how did that work? From, from what he's described uh, in the interview with me, it, it sounds like he had free reign, really. And and it was all initially just about that first single as well for, for Ship of Fools. I think he, he got that job and that happened to lead to the full campaign. Yeah, in the interview, he said all they wanted was, was a sleeve for the single and that the band to be on the sleeve somewhere in a kind of textural way. And then he said, I was really into found objects and storytelling. Everything was fa- was a found item in my mind, including the typography. I just set about editing it all together. I even asked them to take their own photographs. I didn't want it to be a professional photograph, just something that the two adventurers took of themselves on their journey. They sent me a cassette of the track and I listened to it a few times and let my mind wander and create the story. But that was quite sweet, quite romantic way of coming up with a design. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that does sound like kind of a a young art student way of thinking, too. Very, I won't say naive, but just very, very fresh faced and just, you know, I just like that idea very much. Yeah. He went to Brighton as well on uh, one cold winter day and picked up lots of shells and built a little set. Uh, And with the photos washed up on the beach, two lost explorers looking for a lost paradise. There was a book of the same title and we borrowed the old typography from that. From the second single onwards, I teamed up with Slim Smith who would sketch out some layouts and he brought my ideas to life. Oh, uh, okay. I remember I remember that one of us was not a big fan of that first single sleeve, the Ship of Fools sleeve, and I think it was me. Yeah, so, it's the one that's so <laughs> and very that's blue. One, and that's the one that's, I, I criticized it for being so blue. So you're saying they gave him that one assignment, do the single sleeve, but they must have been so pleased with it that they yeah. brought, they asked him then to do do all the other things. So yeah, that's, and that's I, I guess what happened as well was that even though he, he did that one single, he had an idea for a broader concept that would work across the album and across the singles yeah. presumably well, i'm sure that's what helped get him the bigger job once he had a broader picture in mind right and explain that to them right if you can yeah. explain oh well i think this could be a part of a bigger package yeah then yeah you have more to offer yep. and i love all those other other sleeves after that one that was just that first one i i wasn't too impressed yeah. by. But. he said that the whole story of the ship of fools and the innocence was something that he really loved and there were also flyers produced that had like treasure maps on them and one of the posters of the 12 inch sleeves also had a, a shot of a beach and each label was it was a photograph from different clothing it all revolved around a film of the book of the idea so he i think in his head it was quite a big kind of conceptual theme and i think it kind of worked really with the technology that we had in design in those days you know i think it kind of was a successful idea yeah so he had a, a broader vision in mind for the album itself and the, any singles that would accompany it. Um, did he tell you more about that? Yeah. Um, so he said he was really enthused by having generated four completely different sleeves and then treating them as found objects and tearing them up into something else. Maria Beddoes, who I went on to work with, had books of stained glass windows and I was drawn to the one from Chartres. I love the idea of cutting up all of my photographs and remixing them or just the irreverence of it all, but making a seemingly classical piece of work with the two central characters. The history of Chartres also appealed to me with its building on top of a building on top of a building, which was part of the inspiration for the cover. Is it unfinished or discovered or destroyed? Or as was the way with 80s culture, was it plundered and reinvented? Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Yeah, plundered and reinvented. That's a that's a wonderful idea. And that definitely 
is a very 80s concept. Yeah. When talking specifically about the Chains of Love cover, he said it was about finding the treasure, but it was all mixed up with the bits of sea life and wreckage, etc. And then he said, love is a really, really a singular thing. There's previous baggage, other people trying to steal it, fear of losing it. Typographically, we borrowed from 60s soul singles. And it really had that feeling to me at the time, even though it was an electronic music, which was definitely a genre of its own. And that isn't something that I'd even thought about, particularly that there was a 60s influence with the design. But looking at it, I suppose you can see that with the typography. Okay. Oh, really? I'll take, a, take another look. Can you think of any specific labels or... No, I think it's just the, the size of it and the colors and the it's very bold and big. Okay, um, all right. Uh, so last episode, I mentioned just how much I enjoy the, the sleeve for a little respect. I, I think that purple looks very regal and nice and, and the graphics mm. behind it are cool. Did he say anything about that one? He did. Uh, it was built on locations around the world that our adventurers were searching for, how each place has its own mythology and architecture, which reveals a piece of the puzzle. And it's the joint adventure which cements the bonds. Ooh. I love thinking of Vince and Andy as adventurers <laughs> with this record. <laughs> it just occurred to me why you might tie that all together with the particular image that he used on the cover from the cathedral. That was St. James appearing to Charlemagne in a dream and kind of convincing convincing him to go on the next crusade. Oh. The the Spanish crusades, I think it was. So as much as they were also wars, they were also adventures. Right. So I can see that theme, you know, following yeah. through. He says he definitely definitely had an idea in his head that as a band that writes songs about the ups and downs of life and how that inspires them and and he wants to represent that in a kind of abstract way, the head, the heart, adventure and place. But the concept wasn't really a big deal. It was just there. And I think I mentioned it once to Vince and Andy in a slightly awkward presentation. I think it was the first time I'd ever met someone who'd been on the television. (laughs) (laughs) He had a bit of stage fright, perhaps. Yeah. And I asked him particularly as well about whether uh, Vince and Andy were involved in the creative process as well because you know that varies from you know with interviews I've done sometimes the artist is very involved you know George Michael was always very involved with his record sleeves but other people just basically let the designer get on with it and he said that he had two meetings with the band one where they talked through what they wanted and where they had my portfolio and discussed what they liked about it and then mostly after that my presentations were to Daniel Miller and then and then a final one with the band where I talked through everything to be honest they were in the final bits of recording the album at Blackwing so although the cover was interesting to them I think they were more interested in recording the album (laughs) (laughs) understandably so yeah So it sounds like this was a really neat opportunity for Paul. And did he enjoy it? Did he have a good time? Was he nervous? Did did he think this was helpful to the rest of his career? You know, looking back now. Yeah, I think reading, you know, just how much information he gave me, he's really enthusiastic about it all. And he's going to listen to the episode as well. So you may even get some feedback directly from him. But yeah, and he actually said in the interview as well that uh, he was really lucky with Erasure that, you know, I had an approach that wasn't necessarily fashionable and I made some mistakes. I'm not sure they knew it was even my first year at college until after the project was over <laughs> but the so band and, <laughs> but the band and the label were very supportive of, of you know his creativity and his ideas which is great that's the age when you want to go out and it doesn't matter that you ha- don't have the experience you just have confidence in yourself and you go right up and yeah. meet daniel miller yeah, yeah yeah kudos to him okay so here on permanent record podcast we've often been been accused of living in the past so in an attempt to prove those people wrong let me ask you this andrew what is he doing these days Mm, this is an interesting one because whenever i interview people who who were designing sleeves 
back in the 80s and 90s. They were all based in London and they're all still based in London. Well, most of them. Paul isn't based in London. He's now based in the Himalayas. That's so wild. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's yeah. very far from London. <laughs> yes. He says, I guess like everyone, in the end, you begin to pursue your own creative endeavors more and more because commercial limitations are frustrating or just necessary. I designed some bottles for Avida, factoring in all the recycling and low energy usage in production. So in parallel to that, I also made jewelry, which I still wear to this day. So it sounds like he's got much more involved in broader creative things. Really. Yeah, more <laughs> physical things than just, I don't know, our visual art. Yeah, the, the Himalaya thing. I grew up with all the stories and mythologies of Himalaya, I guess from my grandmother and village life. I went to school in India in those formative years, though I had largely forgotten about them when we came back to England. They came back to visit while I was on holiday here a few years ago. It's just a much nicer way of life. It's the same basic format of communities, families, farming, children, education, play as most of the world. The landscape in which it happens, he finds far more satisfying. The proportion of generosity to pettiness, of joy to jealousy is maybe the same as everywhere else, but certainly the harsher environment makes their attitude to resolving those problems quite different. And then the, probably the best bit is that he says, I wanted to build a home, a little retreat in Himalaya for friends or anyone who wants to visit. Authentic is probably a misused word, but it's an extension from the local culture. A stone building, all completely handmade. It's decorated using local timber and techniques and a living, breathing home for, their, for those with a shared outlook. And he invited us over. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, man. Well, wasn't that nice? How, how very <laughs> so, generous. Just hop on over to go. the Himalayas. Let's go and interview him face to face. That would be so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Are you are you thinking about doing that, Andrew? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? The world's a small place. I have a great idea. Let's do it for the 100th episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, let's climb a mountain. So if people are interested in Paul's work, he's still a very, very active photographer and he's producing some beautiful work. A lot of it is on his Instagram page and his name on there is The Kira. So K-H-E-R-A. So The Kira. So do check him out. Yeah, oh, definitely. Do. Very De- cool. Oh, that's great. Thanks for finding all that stuff out. That's going to be a great uh, supplement to the stuff we talked about in the first episode of, of Erasure. Yeah, I know it's 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 quite niche, but it does contextualize a lot of the stuff that we talked about, doesn't it? Right, right. And I just love the idea that he was this young student just with a dream and yep. great amounts of confidence. And, you know, look where it got him. That I love those kind of stories. All right, so we're going to go from that extra credit to a rapid fire fun extra credit, and we are just going to pepper him with questions that we want answers to. <laughs> yes, tell us these things. And this is my chance to just make anything up at all. And sure, <laughs> true. Yeah, yeah. Have and fun with it. As a rule, at least mine, most of mine are are relating to this record. Uh, so I have four questions that are going to be the rapid fire. This is all rapid fire. Okay. All right. Lightning so I'll go round. first, and then Sarah, you can ask after me. We'll alternate. Go on. Andrew. If you could keep one erasure, only one erasure album in your collection, which would it be? And then if you had to never listen to an er- another an erasure album, which one would you get rid of? Oh, that's an easy one. So I would keep this album. I think it's definitely the jewel in the crown. And I'd get rid of Love Boat. Uh, Love Boat is... Uh, uh, it, it's, it gets a bad rap for a lot of reasons. Yeah. It's but, just very... It's just so muddy sounding. Yeah, it's, so, the sound of it, it is it terrible. Is, it is yeah. literally hard to listen to just because it, the sound quality is so poor. Yeah, how did they let that happen? happen i don't know if i didn't have that 
album, though, I would really miss the song Alien. Mm. Yeah. That's a yeah, great I mean, song. There's a few tracks on there that are great, but generally it's the weakest point. You asked him art. to choose. I did. The art, artwork is horrible as well. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of B-sides from this album. What's your favorite one? Oh, favorite one now would be different to my favorite one then. So okay. at the time, back then, I, it would have been like Zsa 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 Gabor. Uh-huh. I thought that was, I just loved how silly that song was. <laughs> um, and just so catchy. Uh, but now I think it's Don't Suppose, I think is is a track that could have actually fitted in on the album, I think. It's, it's a lovely song. It's just really nicely crafted. Mm-hmm. And it's got something unique to it as well, which a lot of the songs on this album have. You know, we talked about the gospel on Yahoo and each it almost felt like each song had something specific to it right and I think the banjo on Don't Suppose is its its unique quality which for me means it could have fitted in quite nicely uh-huh. because, because it would have stood out yes which is that which is a, com- a contradiction isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it fits it would, in it because fit it stands because... out <laughs> well sometimes that's that's how things work <laughs> I told you all the answers wouldn't make sense. <laughs> I, I like that answer. That's that's my favorite B-side as well. All right, Andrew, you told me earlier this week that you never bought the album Light at the End of the Tunnel because of how bad the sleeve was. <laughs> Are there any other albums that never made it to your collection due purely to bad artwork? Is that Erasure or just anything? No, anything. Oh, anything. Um... Oh, that is abysmal, that light at the end of the world cover, though, isn't it? Oh, yeah, uh, World. It's... I think I wrote Tunnel for some reason. <laughs> well, that is <laughs> that's, annoying, that's an Oingo Boingo album. That's right. Um, that has a nice cover. Do you know what? I didn't buy Delta Machine by Depeche Mode. Mm. Didn't buy that album. Oh, really? The cover is pretty hideous. It on is. That as well. I was thinking the album before that one had a bad cover, Sounds of the Universe. I was thinking you wouldn't like that cover. I was seduced by the box. Oh, okay, yeah, all, yeah. All the lovely things in it. Right. I agree. You know, Anton Corbin is an amazing film video director, isn't he? And he's a fantastic photographer, but he's a terrible graphic designer. <laughs> Even the Spirit album, I can't stand the cover of that. I think it's it's embarrassed. Spirit's a pretty so, bad cover. He did the Feather Baby one, right? Uh, yeah, playing uh, the angel. I, I like that one. All right. You like that? I don't. I didn't like that. I don't I, hate. Yeah. I do miss the days of the photography and the the lovely yeah. photographic images on the covers. I think they should go I back mean, I, to that. I remember getting into a discussion on some of the Depeche Mode forums about this exact subject, just kind of quite, you know, just honestly saying, oh, isn't the cover awful? And people really getting angry that it's like, you know, who are you to question Anton Corbin? And, um, you know, yeah, okay, he's, he's a famous creative person, but I, I think that graphic design is a different discipline to photography or, or video. I think that there's, this, there's considerations with graphic design that are very different. And some of those Depeche Mode sleeves are bad. Yeah, I I don't think you're wrong in having that opinion. It's like just because you're a writer doesn't mean you can write a screenplay or a novel or a poem equally well. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. That all makes sense. All right. All right, well, then I have one more. Go on. Can you tell me something about Pete Burns that only someone who lives in Liverpool would know? (laughs) (laughs) Because I have a crush on Pete Burns. Pete Burns, well, because he was dead or alive, only sort of went mainstream in the, was it sort of mid-80s? 85 was You Spin Me Around? Yeah, so that was their big, that was when they kind of broke out, wasn't it, really? But he'd been a big feature on the Liverpool scene, you know, from the late 70s through punk and then, you know, then through, and was it Nightmares on Wax? And then Dead or Alive when they were more underground. So you did used to see him around a lot and he he just didn't care. You know, that was what was brilliant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He he was always what he wanted to be. He was his own special creation. And, And you did... 
Liverpool is a very small city, so you do see people walking around. You know, I'm not, I'm not. I couldn't guarantee if you came here tomorrow, you'd bump into Andy McCluskey or anything out of OMD. But over the period of time, I've I've seen Holly Johnson and I've seen OMD and I've seen a flock of seagulls and I've seen Pete Burns. You do see these people, and Pete Burns was the one who really didn't care what anyone else thought. <laughs> he, he was always, and I remember seeing him. Well, he, he worked in a record shop called Probe, and that was that was our independent record shop where I bought dreaming of me by depeche mode when it came out oh very cool and, and he he worked in that record shop so you'd often see him just just in there selling you know behind the counter selling records oh man <laughs> uh, but equally you would you couldn't miss him if he was wandering around town uh-huh. you know with a bride's gown on or <laughs> <laughs> dressed as a, a pirate or something you know, so he, he was what an uncompromising character. figure he's so cool yeah. so cool Love is was nearly six hours worth of conversation that Brian edited down to three episodes each of which were about an hour and a half long and then I took all of those episodes and cut it down to just over an hour so I hope it was useful I hope you enjoyed it I hope it made you laugh and I hope it brought back some great memories of some fabulous music I'd really like to thank Brian and Sarah for asking me to co-host this episode with them because I think we had a lot of fun and we all learnt a lot and finally, I'd like to thank Paul Kira for answering my questions about his design work for Erasure's The Innocence album. He gave us a brilliant insight into the creativity behind the sleeve design. And finally, 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 I'd just like to say thank you to you for listening. Feel free to leave comments and you can subscribe over at iTunes. Bye bye.